0: Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Ursula Hackett of the New Books Network, New Books in Public Policy podcast. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Lafleur Stevens dugan author of Race to the Bottom, How Racial Appeals Work in American Politics, which was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2020 and received two book awards, the David o. Sears Best Book on Mass Politics Award and the Ralph Bunch Award from the American Political Science Association. Lafleur, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Ursula.
0: I'm super excited to be here today. Well, I'm so excited to have this conversation because this is an absolutely extraordinary book. It is filled with original experimental research on racial campaign messaging. So I'd like to start off by asking you a little bit about yourself and how you came to this topic.
1: Okay, great. Well, a little bit about myself. I am originally from Brooklyn, New York. Uh, you might know that anyone who's from New York um, as a native New Yorker will remind you of that. Um, I have a PhD in public policy and political science from the University of Michigan, and I actually went into graduate school uh, wanting to study the sort of intersection between education and public policy uh, funny enough. And, um, you know, my interest shifted over time. And in terms of this particular project, which originally started as my dissertation, um, some of my interest in that began actually with um, the 2004 Democratic National Convention. Um, you might recall that uh, then a young Senator Obama gave what was considered sort of his uh, breakout speech. And he talked about this idea that there was no black America. There was no white America. There was no red America. There was no blue America. And one of the things that he uh, mentioned in that speech was something that really resonated with me, which was the idea that, you know, we had to communicate to black kids that, you know, if you're a black kid with a book, uh, you know, picking up a book is not acting white. And I remember, um, a lot of the sort of fan fanfare that was given around his speech. And I said, well, that's interesting. You know, he's given uh, some of the background that I had working in education policy prior to grad school, that he seemed to be kind of perpetuating, um, a myth that actually is not borne out in much of the data, both um, anthropological work and quantitative work that, you know, you um, can't ever pretend to know the motives of a politician. But I thought that framing was interesting. And out of that was really where uh, the project was born.
0: So the core concept in your book is this really interesting idea of racial distancing. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that concept and unpack it for our listeners.
1: Sure. So, you know, I alluded earlier to um, this piece about Obama and this idea of not acting uh, white for black kids. And in terms of racial distancing, uh, you can see that, uh kind of what Obama mentioned there, what I talked about in that 2004 speech, uh, playing out in my theory of racial distancing. And that's the idea that for Black candidates, but not exclusively Black candidates, that there is an incentive in the American political system to uh, basically indicate or signal that uh, one is not too beholden to uh, their racial and ethnic minority constituents, particularly African-Americans, because African-Americans historically have been sort of a touchstone in American politics, uh, seen as a group that, you know, has a lot of grievances, uh, stereotyped as kind of complaining too much, demanding too much of the system, and being too reliant on the system. And so in terms of uh, candidates of color, particularly Black candidates, or even uh, for Democratic candidates who are often uh, stereotyped as being too racially liberal, if they want to win in uh, statewide offices or uh, nationwide elections. Uh, I would argue that there are some electoral incentives to uh, distance themselves from uh, the African-American community. And so it's a tightrope that for candidates of color and uh, white Democrats that they face, uh, whereas for their white Republican counterparts, they too engage in this level of distancing. But this is um, what I argue is more of an effort to reinforce their reputation for not being too beholden uh, to communities of color, because that's the uh, stereotype that's associated with them and their party.
0: Mm-hmm. So when you talk about racial distancing, have we got a concept here that's capacious enough to include kind of both um, sort of subtler approach, the kind of dog whistling approaches where you're kind of, or, or maybe the absence, or the significant absence of African-Americans in particular context, or or whether we're talking here about kind of explicit, active, sort of derogatory remarks about African-Americans and sort of appeals to racial prejudice. prejudice.
1: Yeah, well, I'd say that it kind of... Um runs the spectrum, um, at sort of both ends of what you talked about. So it can be more implicit, right. In terms of what we think of as traditionally racially coded language, you know, references to the inner city or, you know, tough on crime, uh, you know, allusions to welfare, you know, issues that have been, um, in American politics historically associated or have become historically associated with African-Americans. But, um, aside from those sort of more subtle dog whistles, there are more explicit ways in which candidates might uh, distance um, and indicate that they're not beholden to these racial and ethnic minorities. And of course, we saw a lot more of this, I think, you know, in uh, the 2015 presidential campaign all throughout, um, you know, the first term of uh, former President Trump, right? So, uh, you know, talking about African-Americans and the idea that they were, you know, living in hell and if, you know, you were in Chicago and you went out for a loaf of bread, you'd get shot. Right. Um, and so um, even up until, you know, last summer with the racial justice protests here, you know, what a, you know, quote unquote, Joe Biden's America would look like in terms of uh, the idea of racial unrest and um, violence in the street. And also this sort of, um scapegoating of I think the Black Lives Matter movement and things of that nature. So it's very wide-ranging, uh maybe in some ways too wide-ranging, but um it's a way that I would argue that candidates can um signal to their racially moderate and conservative uh white constituents that they're not uh beholden to these groups. And so it could be, I mean when I say these groups to African Americans or other racial and ethnic minorities. So it can be, I would argue substantive, it could be visual or rhetorical in nature.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. I hope we can drill down into some of these different, various different strands within this con- con- conceptual apparatus that you have. But you're absolutely. Ups- I mean, you know, it's bringing back memories of, of some of the remarks that were made about various jurisdictions in the Br- in Britain as well. Were mm-hmm. of a racial nature, a very explicit racial nature. And so I think that, I mean we can talk maybe a little bit about um, whether you know the sort of the boundaries of this concept and in in its and in its applicability. In various different jurisdictions as well, but I sort of wanted to drill into this idea about racial categories becoming more or less salient. Because this idea of racial distancing, to me, it sort of implies that maybe you're thinking about making race less salient. You're sort of papering over racial inequalities, real racial inequalities, that by avoiding mention of race. But then, uh, you know, on the other hand, there's there's this element. That you're describing here that's about appealing very explicitly to racial prejudice um and and that sort of connections i'm thinking with with the sort of spillover of racialization uh mm-hmm. literature where people's racial attitudes are becoming invoked uh in areas where you know maybe there wasn't racial content um to begin with
1: yeah no that's great so um when we talk about the spillover of Racialization, essentially, you know, uh, I think that's most associated with Michael Tesler and also um, to some extent his uh, co-author, David Sears. And this idea, you know, um, particularly during the Obama era, that anything that he sort of touched became racialized. Right. You know, uh, with the salience of him being the first black president, um, there was in many ways no way to ignore race and race was that elephant in the room now traditionally we might think especially for democratic candidates that they would engage in a strategy that is referred to in the literature as deracialization and this is this idea that you know you avoid race at all costs you don't mention about mention race you know you cast all of your policies in universal terms and avoid any sort of uh, mention of how they might benefit uh, racial and ethnic minority groups. And, you know, I see my work as building on the deracialization literature, not in opposition to it, but, you know, offering, I think, a little bit more nuance, which is that it's a bit unrealistic to expect um, in this day and age that a candidate could completely avoid any sort of mention of race. And so, Uh, what my theory talks about and what I try to test is how do they talk about race and what types of racial messages might be most effective when trying to um, appeal to racially conservative or racially moderate whites. And so it's the idea that, you know, you can't avoid uh, this elephant in the room, particularly for, um, you know, Black candidates who are, um, you know, my work shows are, um, you know, initially stereotyped as being uh, beholden to their Black constituents. So how do these candidates talk about it and how do they frame it? And, you know, basically, it's not that you don't talk about it, but it's the way in which you talk about it. Um, yeah,
0: absolutely. So, so yeah. I mean, I, there's some fascinating um, experimental work that you've got in there that explicitly tries to distinguish the effects of kind of a deracialization strategy Mm -hmm. uh, from the racial distancing approach. So I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about your results there, about the relative efficacy of these different strategies that people might pursue um, with respect to their, their messaging. Yeah,
1: sure. And I want to be clear, too, that, you know, this is not something that I'm advocating, you know, that candidates engage in. I'm not making any sort of normative claims. This is really just a test of um, a theory. And so in one experiment um, in the book, I do have a nationally representative sample, you know, of roughly uh, 500 white Americans. And I expose them to three different types of messages. You know, they're randomly assigned, you um, such that, you know, any sort of differences that we see in terms of how people react, we can uh, attribute that to uh, the nuance of uh, the message. And so, you know, in one version, um, you know, um, people are exposed to this article that they read, and um, it's essentially telling them that, you know, this Black Democratic candidate, you know, speaking to constituents and tells them, you know, to stop grumbling and complaining. But um, in the versions that are more racialized and, um, you know, bring in this theory of racial distancing, there's an implicit message where he's talking to an inner city audience. So that's, you know, um, sort of a racially coded word. And then a more explicit message where he's talking to um, a Black audience. And so, you know, there's no sort of confusing that race is at, uh, is on the table or isn't at issue. And what I'm able to find is that for, you know, many of the white respondents in the sample, they actually preferred the black candidate who offered this message, uh, either to the inner city audience or to the black audience. And, um, you know, there was, you know, language in there about, um, you know, essentially, uh, the need to work hard and things of that nature. Whereas in the sort of more deracialized message, it was actually one that, you know, emphasized more sort of universalism and us working together. Um, you know, all of them had sort of a thrust of, you know, getting out the vote and trying to encourage people to vote. But I should note that in the sort of deracialized or the control message, um, there was no mention, um, you know, of any sort of racially coded language. It was much more universalistic, this idea that we can kind of solve problems working together. And intuitively, we might think like, you know, that is the message that people would want. People want a message of unity. People want a message of coming together. And um, ironically for, or maybe not so ironically, for many of the racially conservative and uh, moderate whites in the sample, they preferred a message that essentially, um in some ways chastised African Americans, whether that be implicit uh through the term inner city or explicit, um, you know, openly talking to black people.
0: And what about the black audiences? So, I mean, a lot of this racial distancing is focused on the, eff- um, the effect of those messages on racial racial you call them racially moderate and racially conservative whites. Um that's the the primary sort of um audience for maybe a lot of this racial distancing, but actually, um, what about the, I mean, how do African-American audiences respond to these things? I mean, do they, do they sort of have to grin and bear it or, or, or is there a kind of a, you know, a, a, a more negative response to these kinds of appeals?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question. I would say, um, you know, in the book, one, maybe whole, you could argue is that I don't, um, Test these messages on Black audiences explicitly. But I do draw on the work of other political scientists who, you know, have made the argument, essentially, that for African Americans who, you know, in the United States context, we're in a two-party system, and with African Americans being both to the left of uh, both the Democratic and the Republican Party, essentially, you um, they don't really have an exit strategy um, in terms of, you know, mobilizing often against, you know, even their own Black candidates who uh, might use this type of messaging. So, um, for example, political scientist Fred Harris, you know, he talks about this as a sort of a wink and nod agreement between uh, Black candidates and uh, their Black constituents. This idea that, um, you know, they're sort of making this, tacit bargain that uh, for these uh, often Black Democratic candidates to get elected uh, in statewide often offices or nationwide offices where they're going to need white votes, this is sort of, you know, type of messaging that they need to, um, you know, implement in order to be elected. Um, and, you know, to be fair, there's also a strand of, you know, conservatism that runs fairly strong among the African-American community, where many of these people might actually be quite Uh, receptive to this type of messaging as well, right? So, you know, if you think about, you know, uh, the strong sort of uh, religious Christian tradition, um, much of this might not be um, that different than what, you know, many people might hear from a pulpit on uh, Sunday morning. So there is this sort of strand of individual responsibility, this personal responsibility um, that I think for many African Americans uh, resonates quite well. Um, what's interesting about this though is that previously you'd maybe think of this as sort of an in-group conversation. This is something that would you know be happening you know conversation in church or at the beauty salon or at the family barbecue but, Uh, Given sort of the ways in which uh, we've seen uh, the media environment evolve and also having these candidates run um, on these larger platforms, this is is a message that goes to the proximate audience of African Americans, but is reverberated much uh, larger beyond uh, the African American community.
0: That is so interesting because uh there's there's so much here i have been thinking about in relation to intra these intra party disputes or the potential for these kinds of um uh, wedges within the democratic party in terms of the sort of messaging strategy i mean um i you know i i was thinking in terms of in terms of the um uh the sort of the surge of more secular Democrats, and that being actually a point of a kind of flashpoint of contention between, <laughs> um, in particular that it becomes a racial flashpoint because of the way in which African American and Hispanic Democrats tend to be more religious, and then there are those uh, those um, on the De- in the Democratic Party who are more drawn to a, a more sort of secular message, and so there's some interesting intra-party disputes there, and I, I wonder if we could expand on that in relation to this idea of racial. Uh, messaging and the choices that different Democrats actually make uh, about what is going to be politically expedient for them. So you mention in your book some of the candidates, some of the politicians who have not chosen to pursue a kind of racially distancing message. People like Cory Booker, people like Kamala Harris, um, who maybe didn't choose to to, to go down that route. And I'm just wondering whether the whether you think of these these uh, candidates as kind of whether it's just a sort of idiosyncratic decision not to pursue the racial distancing approach, which maybe has these benefits that you described just then, uh, or or whether there's something we can say systematically about the circumstances under which it would be more uh, or less politically expedient for these particular Democrats to take up the, the racially distancing approach in terms of their messaging?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great
0: question.
1: Um, you know, I think it's a little bit of both. I think there's probably just some idiosyncrasies that are associated with different campaigns. But also, I think we're seeing a bit of an evolution in politics as well, uh, particularly in light of, um, you know, the last 18 months in American politics or so, uh, especially given, you know, much of the emphasis on racial justice. So, you know, much of my data or actually all of my data were collected prior to sort of this most recent um, sort of racial flashpoint in the United States. So in terms of candidates being able to use, particularly uh, Black candidates being able to use this type of racial distancing uh, message and um, strategies, I think there would be maybe a less of a um, sort of taste for this uh, given the sort of current configuration of uh, the Democratic Party. So there was maybe some political learning that went on, for example, with Obama, where, you know, him being the first, I think there was uh, maybe some more latitude that was given to him to use this type of messaging. But, you know, if you think back to uh, uh, the Democratic primaries and uh, Booker or Kamala Harris, when uh, they were running uh They were emphasizing things like, um, you know, Booker, you know, marijuana legalization and, you know, even in Harris's exchange with Biden um, at that one uh, debate you know, she actually turned explicitly to race and, you know, this idea that, you know, he wasn't supportive of busing. And so, uh, you know, it's not to say that they can necessarily go out and, you know, carry the mantle of racial liberalism. I don't think that we've reached that far, especially as Black Democratic candidates. But um, I do think we're at a particular political moment, and I don't know how long this will last, where um, I think the more sort of progressive wing of the Democratic Party would not be receptive to some of that public, you know, chastisement of uh, Black communities. Now, we also have, um, I think, some shift in the composition of the party, too, where, you know, uh, many of those, not all, but a lot of those racially moderate and conservative whites who might have still been in the Democratic Party have, you know, now flocked uh, to the Republican Party. And so in terms of the uh, decision calculus that a candidate would have to uh, make to win, you know, particularly at the national level, um, a Democratic nomination, um, there might be, I think, a little less of a taste for some of those more um, explicit, uh, racially distant uh, messages. I don't want to um, you know, <laughs> go on too long. But this also makes me think of, um, I think, after, you know, Biden's uh, first address to um, his first joint address to Congress, you might recall that um, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina, he gave the Republican response. And, you know, he talked about essentially this idea, you know, that America is not a racist country. And, Uh, One of the things that happened in the aftermath of that is that, you know, they went to Kamala Harris in an interview like the next day and they asked her like, you know, so do you agree? And you could see that she was sort of doing this, you know, mental and rhetorical gymnastics about how to answer this because, um, you know, to deny that there is systemic racism in the United States would alienate, you know, many progressives in the Democratic Party. But I think for her um, as a black woman to, you know, essentially um, sort of indict the United States as systemically racist, that was something that she um, likely struggled with. And even relative to say a Joe Biden as an older white male Democrat who, you know, has called out systemic racism and has talked very explicitly about race. I think it does show uh, the constraints that, um, you know, Democrats can face, particularly Democrats of color, even relative to, you know, uh, their white Democratic counterparts.
0: I mean, I think it's so interesting that you bring up Kamala Harris because I mean, I, I did find that that moment where she talked about busing just such a powerful um, moment for me. Um, uh, uh, um, but, but, but I, I, it's not something you deal with specifically in the book. Um, so maybe mm-hmm. this is a bit unfair. But I was wondering because y- you talk about um, the, the the particular strategic calculus that faces women of colour. And you don't really talk explicitly about gender, but I just wondered how gender, do you have any thoughts about how gender might play into this calculus and the decision whether or not to pursue racial distancing strategies?
1: Well, what I can say is I'm working on some research, not uh, necessarily specifically on racial distancing, but uh, with some colleagues, uh, Davin Phoenix at UC Irvine and Andrea Benjamin at the University of Oklahoma. And we're looking at this intersection between a uh, candidate race and uh, gender and emotion. And, you know, our preliminary work is showing that Black women in particular, even so even more so, and maybe surprisingly so, than their Black male counterparts um, are um, penalized more for any sort of expression of anger. And it suggests that there's something about that intersectionality of both race and gender that constrains them in a way that maybe even their Black male counterparts are not uh, constrained. So they have, you know, what some refer to as this double bind, both, you know, uh, as you know, being black, so by their race, but also by their gender as women. And um, the penalties that we're seeing that they face uh, relative to white males, white women, and even, uh, you know, their black male counterparts are actually more severe.
0: That is so interesting, because so it seems that there's, I mean, it's it's not the case necessarily that all efforts to racially distance are necessarily going to be very emotional, like, in 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 tone um but 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 they have that kind of chastising quality and and i'm just wondering whether that i mean is yeah people there is a a particular resistance to those sorts of messages from it comes from women
1: yeah i mean i think particularly for black women in terms of you know this sort of stereotype of this neck rolling angry um you know woman who's maybe even um you know, prone to sort of, you know, I'm saying about the stereotype of like emasculating men or something. I do think, you know, this idea of like chastising, I don't know if, you know, a black woman, I mean, I don't empirically test this, but if they could have made the uh, remarks that, and I don't mean to pick on Obama, but, you know, the remarks that he made about, you know, cousin Pookie or uncle Jethro or, you know, pulling up your pants, I don't know if they would have resonated well. Um, as well, particularly among other African-Americans, um, you know,
0: if it came from a woman, from a woman, that is so interesting. Cause that, I mean, it, it is a very, um, it, it's a, it's a concept that gets in, or this, this strategy gets pursued by many different politicians in many different circumstances. And you've got kind of, it seems what what's interesting to me is that, is that racial distancing is something that can be pursued not only by, uh, or not, maybe not even particularly by Republican mm-hmm. candidates, um, but also by Democrats, but and by, by, by both both white and black uh, uh, politicians, um, uh, and, and maybe there's a there's a sort of there are some constraints that come out um, when it, when we think about the, the gender dimension, and perhaps there are also constraints on the part of Republicans pursuing racial distancing strategies we talked a lot about democrats but mm-hmm. could you you talk a little bit about that about the when and where republicans can actually engage in racial distancing or yeah. not
1: yeah thank you that's great um so yeah i one of the things that i wanted to do with this theory is to test a theory that i think is a bit more expansive and um and which is why it's more you know inclusive of just white republicans i think there can be a tendency to um maybe focus on, you know, a lot of the negative racial messages that we've seen historically uh, coming from white Republicans. Um, you know, we think of them as the party, and I think rightfully so, of the racial dog whistle. Um, and they've, you know, exploited racial division, you know, post-civil rights movement um, as a way to you know, keep their mostly white face. Um, So I'm not trying to absolve them by any means. And uh, there's a long, you know, really terrible history in terms of the party's uh, behavior on uh, matters of race. Uh, But, you know, one point I'm trying to make is that by sort of this hyper focus on white Republicans, like, you know, it's very easy to kind of uh, pick on the low hanging fruit of a Donald Trump who's going to, you know, you know, Almost guaranteed to say something racially inflammatory um, that we maybe are um, avoiding or, you know, not paying close enough attention to some of the ways in which even um, the party that we think is sort of the most ardent supporters of African Americans might uh, be incentivized to play to these stereotypes and to invoke them as well as a way to, um, you know still court or at least not lose too much of uh, their racially, you know, moderate or conservative whites who they do need to win elections. Now, in terms of uh, white Republicans and, you know, when they might use this type of strategy or why they might use this type of strategy, um, you know, I argue in the book that they're often using it because they have this reputation. And for, you know, many racially moderate or conservative whites, that reputational, um, you know, it's a reputational advantage is my point for them. It doesn't actually hurt them uh, with these voters to be seen as, um, you know, essentially fighting for the interest of whites. And, you know, we're in a uh, two-party system here in the United States where, you know, partisan um, attitudes and racial attitudes are just increasingly bound up into one. And so for, you know, white Republican, you know, prior to Donald Trump, they were engaging in a lot of this racial distancing. I think what is a bit surprising or I think caught a lot of us off guard was the extent to how far he could go without much backlash or uh, penalty. Um, And so um, I think typically we think of these messages maybe as like sort of off base, but they're only most likely to be punished By sort of the more racially liberal folks, right? They're going to be getting a more uh, severe penalty in part because uh, from racial liberals and from people of color, because they already have like this established reputation of being, you know, um, anti-black or too conservative uh, on matters of race.
0: Mm. And I mean, talking about these, the 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 power of these images and of of the stereotypes and and the sort of people and and of and of. The power of partisanship as well. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about was just the the, the, given the strength of some of these stereotypes, which you talk about a lot in the book, and also this this we're in this period of very very heightened partisan polarization. It's becoming more and more entrenched. There's high levels of affective polarization, and 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 just the power of those partisan labels in that era of polarization. Were there actually? It's ever possible to kind of move the needle um electorally through you know your, your messaging strategy i mean given given just how powerful um the party label is um and and how powerful people how powerfully people associate particular groups particular individual politicians with certain characteristics um as well in terms of you know whether people can actually, will actually um, switch their votes or not. So, I mean, one of the things which I thought was great in the book was that you were talking a lot about, I mean, you're bringing to bear experimental evidence upon these questions about the relative importance of the racial cue and the partisan cue. Um And I wondered if you could just speak to that about the sort of, you know, how can we move the needle um, in this era where everything seems to be so entrenched, people seem to be so um, sort of, you know, hidebound by particular... Um, visions of who they are and, 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 and what that party label means as well. Yeah, I mean,
1: I think you hit the nail on the head to um, some degree. Like the partisan labels are so strong at this point um, and we are so hyperpolarized in the United States. But I think in terms of, you know, your question of being able to move the needle, you know, not everyone who's identifying with either party is hyper partisan. Um, and, you know, they might not be strong Republicans or not strong uh, Democrats or they might be independents. And for those people who are true leaners or, you know, um, less at the extreme ends of the party, I think those are sort of uh, the people for whom the needle can be moved, um, you know, the mm-hmm. people sort of, sort of more in the middle. And I would say we probably have a shrinking middle, but mm. middle nonetheless. And, uh, that's likely where, uh, we're likely to see, you know, any sort of, uh, movement, but, you know, most people, you know, historically partisanship is going to be, uh, the, you know, greatest determinant of how someone votes,
0: yeah. mm-hmm. but, you
1: know, for some of those people at the margins that might that make, make all the difference at yeah. that point.
0: I mean, yeah, so I, I had a kind of crazy um um thought as as I was thinking about this idea of racial distancing, which I think has got such um great uh sort of purchase in politics and and and, and how we and, and how it is at the moment. And, but but I was wondering whether there's kind of an analogue, um, whether there's a symmetry to this, whether whether there's an analogue in a kind of racial posturing, um, whether whether there's a sort of on the, on the other side, on the mm-hmm. sort of on the on the side of those who who want whites in particular who want to seem woke, you know, who mm-hmm. whites who want we want to sort of appeal to racial liberals in particular. And I'm, again, this is mm-hmm. this is beyond the scope. This is a bit mm-hmm. unfair of me, but no, no, I I just wondered whether how you how you see that your 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 sort of concept which is focused on the on on those appealing to the racially conservative, whether there is a symmetry to that, or whether actually you know, uh, on, on, on the left or whether there's it really, all the action is going on at the, at the racial distancing end.
1: Oh, no, I think you're totally onto something that there is a certain level of racial posturing, uh, that's happening on the left, um, in terms of also indicating some level of racial liberalism, right? If you want to make it out of, uh, the party, you know, or to grasp the party nomination, um, you have to some degree to, particularly in this particular uh, political moment, there has to be some sort of indication of, um, I think, some commitment to racial justice. Now, what that justice, that commitment looks like, I think a lot of it is sort of performative and can be a little rhetorical uh, for politicians. And, you know, like I alluded to earlier, there is in some ways... um, you know, white politicians have a little bit more latitude to do that. You know, you know, Joe Biden, when he accepted that Democratic nomination, you know, he gave a speech and said, you know, the Black community has always had my back and I'll always have yours or something to that effect. And, you know, granted that there is, you know, some distance in time, but I don't think we could even envision a world if Obama was running today where he could literally explicitly talk about, you know, the Black community having his back and uh, he having theirs. Like there was much more of an emphasis on, you know, he had to be the president of all America, not just black America. And, you know, going to great lengths to show that there wasn't any sort of uh, favoritism. Uh, whereas for, you know, Joe Biden, you know, some of just his embodiment of a white Democrat, I do think that there is a certain level of latitude and, um, electoral, uh, incentive for him to do that because there was some skepticism around, you know, uh, his commitment to communities of color and to, you know, black people and his support for, you know, the crime bill in the nineties and things of that nature. So, uh, for the more sort of progressive wing, there has to be, a I uh, I think an, um, an attempt to, uh, prove, your sort of, uh, I don't know, racial wokeness or something. Um, At the mass level, it's interesting to see how this has played out. I haven't done a ton of work about this, but, you know, even, but like all of the early uh, indications suggest that even some of the commitment and, you know, uh, the multiracial protests that we saw uh, last summer that some of the commitment on the part of, uh, you know, many white Americans has sort of waned in terms of, you know, the importance that they're placing on racial justice, you know, even a year later or the strategies to achieve that. So oftentimes, you know, what's borne out in the public opinion data is that, you know, um, people want uh Racial equality, or they espouse support for racial equality. But then, when it comes to actually the substantive strategies for getting there, um, you know, some of that uh, commitment is waning. And, you know, it's what we as political scientists sometimes refer to as that sort of principle policy gap, right? There's, you know, support for it in principle, but in policy, uh, in terms of achieving that, um, you might see far. Lower levels of support, even among you know white Democrats, policies like affirmative action, for example, are not popular. You know this is not something that's just unpopular on the right. It's not popular among uh, you know most white Democrats, or you know uh, even something you know that people would think of as more extreme or more liberal, like reparations. There's not a great appetite for these things, and so. I think there are some limitations to uh, mm. the wokeness or the substance of the wokeness.
0: Mm. I'm really glad that we bring up both um, the question of the substantive versus the kind of rhetorical dimension, and also this, uh, and also Barack Obama, because you have a you have a a chapter in your book where you talk pretty persuasively about the the various different ways in which Obama pursued racial distancing, you know, and and, and this this idea of you know trying to sort of signal to moderate and conservative white audiences that he's not gonna upset the racial status quo. I mean that's sort of the definition of racial distancing. And mm-hmm. I was thinking about that and, and just just the, the ways in which I mean we might want to draw a distinction, I suppose, between the the rhetorical dimension here and then the substantive, because in many ways Obama does substantively upset mm-hmm. the racial status quo, right? In terms mm-hmm. of his his policy achievements in healthcare and elsewhere. But um so I'm I'm just wondering how we sort of think about that and in terms of, you know, it's it's it is uh, it is substantively disruptive of the racial status quo in in some regards. I mean, mm-hmm. not in all, but 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 the, but maybe the signals are not in line with that substance. So, the sort of rhetorical signals. And so, so what's happening there? Is it this? Is this that, that you know Obama's talking one way and he's walking another? Or it's kind of or, or, or are these some of these white audiences being kind of racial conservatives duped in in any way um, into into sort of. Um, mm. you know, expressing some support for, for you know on the rhetorical side of things, but then when it comes to the policy specifics, um, and uh, mm-hmm. you know maybe things go a different way. So yeah, I just wonder if you had any thoughts about that about the sort of rhetorical substantive dichotomy.
1: No, I think that's great. Um, I think that goes back to that question of the wink and the nod, right? So this idea that he had to say, you know, many people believe he had to say certain things to get elected, but you know once he gets in there, he'll do, uh, what was needed and, you know, not just him, but, you know, other politicians who might engage in this type of messaging. Um, you know, I think the sort of final report card is a bit mixed. Um, definitely in terms of, you know, the Affordable Care Act, um, that was um, a universal health care program, but we know that, you know, people of color, Black people were more likely to be uninsured and, you know, disproportionately benefited from, uh, the ACA. So that is a way in which, you know, a policy might be packaged as universal, but could still have, you know, greater benefits for, uh, Black communities or people of color. And so, you know, I would, you know, definitely concede that on, um, that dimension, um, he was able to deliver, you know, gains to African-Americans, even if they were not necessarily promoted or packaged as such. Now, when it comes to a whole host of other issues with regards to, you know, wealth inequality or, you know, um, I think, you know, racial justice and policing, um, I think for, you know, many African-Americans, and we saw this maybe even play out in 2016, uh, they didn't necessarily feel like their lives were any uh, different substantively, even under eight years of an African-American uh, president. Right. And so, um, you know, I think there was some level of delusion, uh, disillusion with, um, you know, what gains uh, they were afforded, even with having, you know, a black man and arguably the most powerful position in the world. And, you know, when we think about 2016 and some of um, the autopsy that was done there was kind of like this idea that, well, um, potentially one explanation for why turnout wasn't what it was in 2008 or 2012 among African-Americans was that there was maybe some sense that, um, you know, any president, no matter what they promised to deliver, couldn't really um, deliver the gains that meant you know, real substantive uh, differences
0: in uh, people's lives. I mean, the overall um, experience I have of reading your book, which is just—I mean, it is—it is, it is exquisitely well argued, and it has this extraordinary collection of original experimental data to back up those arguments but my overwhelming impression is this is a really depressing um read in the sense that um i mean it's pretty sobering isn't it i mean you know the 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 the, the power of some of these negative racial appeals that we we maybe haven't been um paying enough attention to and and you know this this i think it, it, it it sort of um connects so um painfully well with so much other research that we're seeing about the power of these of, of sort of explicit racial cues and people not being particularly worried about racially hostile content in political communications. I mean mm-hmm. I'm thinking about stuff that like Nicholas Valentino, I'm thinking about Vince Hutchings. I think mm-hmm. all these things that you discuss and that you that you know you're you're part of that research agenda that is really redefining our understanding of of the power of negative racial, explicit negative racial content. And I find that incredibly sobering to read um, a very powerful read and a very sobering one but um I, I wonder whether you see any causes for optimism about the future of American politics and about in particular you know sort of identity politics and about um, campaign messaging in particular and, and 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 whether there's anything positive that we can we can any straws that we can grasp out here in this incredibly <laughs> bleak picture.
1: Yeah, I mean, I hate to end on a bleak note or, you know, the book I do think has a sobering message about racial uh, communications in the United States. But I think one thing um, that might be cause for optimism is that we haven't, part of, you know, what I talk about is that the parties are risk averse, particularly the Democratic Party. So uh, to some degree, we don't know the extent to which, um the sort of more racially liberal messages would work because the party has never fully uh, bought into going all the way into that. Right. And so there's potential that those messages could be mobilizing and get people excited and, you know, and, you know, ready to turn out. Um, but I think what we've seen is maybe just too much of an emphasis or a hyper concern with, you know, middle of the road, Voters, But there is, um, at least what we're seeing in, um, I guess, actual politics on the ground, is that there is a way in which, you know, candidates can get folks excited. So you think about it like a Stacey Abrams and what she was able to do in Georgia. Like, you know, they could have never delivered the Senate or uh, the state of Georgia to Biden without uh, the enthusiasm and the mobilization of uh, Black voters in Uh, That state. So I do think that is some cause for hope and optimism. Um, It suggests that, you know, there's a way in which the party can communicate to uh, Black voters about their importance to the party and um, just how instrumental they are. And I think what is important there is that there has to be some sort of tangible delivery to those communities too so it can't just be about getting them excited and turned out uh, on election day but kind of forgetting about them in between and um, especially important I think and hopefully I mean I'm trying not to go too normative here but you know the party I think has to pay great attention to these efforts to uh, suppress uh, the vote and to you know make real, uh efforts to protect uh, particularly the black vote because it's you know clearly under siege uh
0: final question and this is uh connected with something some of the things that you've um, mentioned before about the about the work that you're doing on on emotions and gender and race um I, I just wonder what's next for you? I mean this is this isn't, this is unfinished. I mean as you said just now I mean this is unfinished business and we need to be be um, uh, you know really opening up the research agenda here. I mean what's next for you in terms of building on your work on uh, uh, racial campaign messages?
1: So actually, I've kind of, I wouldn't say I've taken a complete turn. I'm still working on questions around racial messaging, but not necessarily in the context of campaigns. So um, my next book project is actually looking looking at um, how racial attitudes are shaping the response to the pandemic here in the United States. Um, And so I have some interesting work also... (laughs) I hate to say a little uh, depressing or sobering, but showing that, you know, drawing attention to the disparate impact of the pandemic um, on African Americans actually uh, results in or is associated with, you know, racially conservative whites sort of, you know, diminishing the importance of wearing a face mask and, you know, essentially. Um, engaging in less pro-social behavior or becoming more resistant to COVID restrictions and guidelines when they're reminded that African Americans are uh, disproportionately affected. And that was so, fascinating.
0: Yeah. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, yeah, no, no. That's fine. Yeah. I mean that that is just fascinating, just because it it absolutely has these global implications because we see all of these racial stories playing out not only in America but but also elsewhere in the world in relation to the pandemic. And so this is this is this is this is hugely important work. Um Lafleur thank you so, so much for speaking with me. Um, The book, everyone, is Race to the Bottom, How Racial Appeals Work in American Politics. Uh, Lafleur, thank you so much for speaking with me.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Ursula. It was a lot of fun.